So in my uh, experience, a subject that is uh, misunderstood in the Christian church is how to understand the Old Testament. I've seen some churches were like, yeah, we're just not going to talk about that. Let's just like pretend like it's not there. It's confusing and complicated. So let's just kind of like, you know, evade the, New Te uh, the Old Testament. On the other hand, you have people that really dive into the Old Testament big time. They're really passionate about it and they don't eat pork or shellfish or anything and they're trying to follow like all these laws and uh, one group in particular that was very interesting to me uh, they didn't go as far as to follow all the kosher laws but what they did is they went on a diet from the old testament they thought it was a diet book of sorts and they thought that this diet would get them closer to god and this isn't like some like oh hey, this must be some like really small bizarre obscure church and no one ever does this no it was a mega church in california it was huge it was massive and they taught their congregants that it's the old testament's not just for moral living it's also a diet book it's a book to go on a diet you know lose lose some weight and be spiritual in the process i guess right and so they would encourage everybody in their church to go on this daniel diet i'm just curious who's heard of the daniel diet some people i was telling my wife she's from louisiana about it she's like what's the daniel diet i never even heard of that it's like no some people so yeah if you're from socal or that area you've heard of this and so what the daniel diet is is they call it a daniel fast which it isn't by the way it's not a fast if you're still eating but they have you uh, get away from meat, dairy, and alcohol, and all these rich foods are avoided. And you're on, you know, vegetables, fruit, and water to be more sensitive to God. So, yeah, it's based on Daniel's diet in the book of Daniel, where he did this three-week morning fast, and he abstained from all meat and wine. And people take this as a fast. It's, not a, it's just cutting out, really, meat, alcohol, and, and cheese and stuff. But the point of a story in Daniel is not to give you a diet, a diet plan. The point of the text is, is he, as Daniel is looking at it, he is trying to keep this diet because the Babylonians were giving him unclean food according to the Old Testament law. And they were not you know, practicing kosher diet. That's why he didn't have it. So Daniel is sacrificing here at great personal cost to be obedient to the law of God. He's not trying to be like, you know, a YouTube diet guru or something like that. And what's interesting is that Jesus didn't follow this diet plan. Jesus had fish and wine. John the Baptist didn't go with his diet either. He had locusts and wild honey, right? I don't see anybody trying to copy that diet plan. Right? Like people like all dressed up like John the Baptist out in the wilderness. They're like, I think we got to put you in an institution. I don't know if this is right. This is kind of a little weird. You're like, locusts and wild honey, you know? That's not going to take off in a church, is it? So, yeah. And so, you know, this idea of getting diets from the Old Testament is a misreading and a misappropriation of the Old Testament. We're to properly read this text about Daniel here as pointing to Christ's sacrifice and obedience. In fact, that's the prism by which we're to read the Old Testament is through the person and work of Jesus. That's what it's all about. That's not like my opinion is like some pastor or something. That's from the words of Jesus Christ, our Lord himself, in Luke 24, 25, after he's resurrected. 24, 25 through 27, he's talking to his disciples and he is explaining the purpose of the Old Testament. 
This is what it says. And he said to them, O foolish ones and, and slow of heart to believe, all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things to enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, not some of them, all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So Jesus is looking at the scriptures here, pointing out to his disciples, saying, no, the Old Testament's about me. It points to me, it symbolizes me, it's a type of me, it, it connects to me. It isn't a diet book, it isn't a book fundamentally about moral instructions, it's fundamentally about Christ. So Daniel's obedience and sacrifice to the law is to point to Jesus' ultimate obedient life and sacrifice on the cross. And this point is lost by many Christians, and not just regular Christians, but prominent, well-known pastors in the Christian church. I want to share some anonymous quotes from pastors I've listened to uh, that have said this about the Old Testament, making it a book about you and you being a hero. This is from one. In order for David to become David, he needed a Saul. Stop despising Saul. You need Saul. You need people to hate on you. It's really encouraging. You need the people to tear you up. Thank God for Saul, because if you've got a Saul, that makes you David. So I guess, you know, everybody has somebody who hates them. I guess everybody's a David then, if you're reading this, right? Here are two more from popular pastors about the David and Goliath story. Very interesting. You're going to defeat that giant. Yes, that obstacle is big, but you have greatness in you. It's a lot of greatness, I guess, huh? Yeah, sure. It beat every obstacle in your life. Like, that's going to happen in every case. We, we stumble sometimes. Here's another one. This one is really interesting. We're going to keep our distance from our enemies and sling our stones until every Goliath falls down in our life. Don't take that advice too literally, right? And I don't know how cage fighters or MMA fighters follow this. They usually do close distance combat. They can't do it from a distance. But, I mean, you see, all of these are trying to just distort the biblical text to make everything about you. In your life, you're becoming more successful. You becoming more morally obedient. You overcoming obstacles. It's all about you. So the point isn't Daniel points to Christ in these things. The point is dare to be a Daniel, right? Try harder, you know, kind of thing. And so, you know, David and Goliath is all about you overcoming bullies and obstacles in your life. So that every Old Testament like lesson is turned into a motivational video from like Tony Robbins or David Goggins, right? Without the cussing, of course, right? Because those guys, I was surprised. I heard a lot about Tony Robbins. I watched his uh, Netflix video. And I'm like, man, this guy for a motivational speaker, this guy cusses a lot. Like, like it's every other and David Goggins, of course, right? But Sorry, it was a side thing. But the point is, is that it's not about some motivational speaker, motivational video that you're putting into every Old Testament text. And to read the Bible as if it is about you. Every verse is about you. That's incredibly, like, narcissistic. It's all about, oh, it's all about your moral improvement. All about your obstacles in life. It's a very narcissistic, self-centered way to read the Bible. The Bible, I'm trying, I'll say this to you lovingly. The Bible, I hate to say it, is not about you. It's about Jesus Christ, and we're to read it through that lens. And when you want to read the Bible in a Christ-centered way, you're going to read the story of David and Goliath totally different. You don't want to know who you are in the story of David and Goliath. You're the cowering, 
frightened Israelites looking on as Jesus, who's represented by David, crushes Goliath, which represents sin and death. By his death and resurrection, Jesus crushes the biggest obstacles, the most important obstacles, sin and death. So we are the people looking on and we literally don't do anything. Jesus, like David did it all for Israel, Jesus does it all for us. So it's not about us, it's about Jesus. And that's what all the law of Moses points to and is fulfilled by as Jesus, by the way. We can't fulfill the law, only Jesus does. And so he does all the Old Testament law for us, is obedient for all of it, he fulfills it. So the very natural question people have is, well, so I, do I need to keep these laws at all? Do I need to follow the biblical rules? I mean, you're saying, Nate, the Bible's not about me. So where does this relate to rules and morality and moral improvement? What's the connection here? Is there any connection here? We're going to look at this in our verse-by-verse -verse study of Romans 10, 1 through 4. Starting at verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for them, the Jewish people, is that they may be saved. Now, Paul is is talking about his Jewish brethren, right, who rejected Christ, rejected the gospel because, as we looked at last time, of self-righteousness. Of because of their self-righteousness, they have tripped and stumbled over Christ, a stumbling stone, and they have, instead of following Christ's righteousness, they try to rely on their own self-righteousness. And so this is how Paul puts it in verse uh, Romans 10.2. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. They're really passionate. They're really zealous. They're, they're all into this. But not according to knowledge, which includes reality. In order for you to have knowledge, the belief must be true. What Paul is saying here is, yeah, your Jew, his Jewish brothers are very passionate. They're, they're committed. They're totally into this. They're following their understanding of God, following their own righteousness. But they actually don't know the truth. They were passionate in their belief that they were good and righteous. They were zealous in their own self-righteousness before God and committed to their self-righteousness and, and keeping up appearances of self-righteousness as well. And I don't know if you guys have, I'm sure you guys have met someone who's holier than thou or self-righteous. We all have, right? But if you ever meet a really holier than thou self-righteous person, what you're going to see is they're very passionate about defending themselves and the fact that they're a God warrior, that they're doing, that they're in with God and because they're just work so hard and they're terrific. They're very passionate about that. There's nothing more important to a self-righteous and holier-than-thou person that they are on the right path. They're doing everything right and everybody else is a problem. That is like a part of their identity. And so, yeah, they're passionate, but their passion is misplaced. They're totally off because their zeal does not match with reality. Everybody's a problem but them. It doesn't match up with knowledge here, as Paul says. And so what Paul is really condemning here is the idea of fanaticism. And it, in the form as is expressed, which is self-righteousness. Fanaticism is, is a perspective that you can be sincerely passionate and, and committed and into something, but you follow it in a, just an incredibly ignorant and uncritical way. And if you look at our culture, like, when you say that person's an addict or they're into fanaticism, that's got, that's got a very negative I think appeal in our culture. We don't we, we associate fanatics with like people like that are crazy, religious crazy people like Jim Jones, the Westboro Baptist Church, radical Islam, religious terrorism in all of its forms. That's what we think of like fanatics, right? Kind of like crazy, intense, and they don't really think through things, they're kind of frothing at the mouth. That's what we typically have when we have fanaticism. And what's so ironic is that our culture is is really down on fanaticism, but they're into it when it suits them. And I've talked to so many people who have said this. 
Well, it doesn't matter what you believe or think so long as your heart's in the right place and you've got good intentions and you're really sincere about what you believe. Common mantra in our culture is if you are true to yourself and do what you feel, Oh, you can't go wrong with that. And man, I have seen men say that they go with what they feel and they're true to their feelings. And with that logic, those men have abandoned their families for a pursuit or for another woman. And so we have to realize that this type of fanaticism that our culture supports is harmful to people, is harmful to human beings. Because you can be really sincere about something and not live according to knowledge and it hurt people. Just to give a really weird, funny example, I looked this up on the internet. But did you know that people used to think heroin was good in small doses? They're like, oh yeah, a little bit of heroin's okay. Like, heroin kills people, right? Pretty sure it does, yep. And so what they would do is they would put heroin in cough syrup in uh, the 1800s. And so people, when they had cough syrup, they would get a little bit of heroin in there because people thought it was good. And after research, just basic research really, they found out that heroin, yeah, and surprise, surprise, is really bad for you. For centuries, people thought that, that the way to cure disease is to bloodlet, like literally start draining out your blood to get all the evil spirits out, right? And then people got into leeches too and like suck out the blood. But that has nothing to do with health. That's in fact bad for your health. But you, th you see people sincerely with good intentions believe this and this was in fact false and harmful information. But here's the point. You can be sincere, you can be zealous, and you can believe something strange and harmful. It doesn't matter if you believe it with your whole heart and you're really emotional about it. It has no impact on reality whatsoever. What matters is what's actually true and how to respond with wisdom with that. I love the way the Proverbs put it in Proverbs 14. 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is a way to death. And see, Paul's saying here, that applies to religious beliefs, beliefs about worldviews as well. Paul is not a postmodernist, you know, kind of relativist. It's true for you, but not for me kind of thing. Just do whatever you want, right? According to Paul, you can have this sincerely devoted and committed belief to a religious worldview, to a God, to a way of following God that you think is right, but which does not line up with reality. And it will hurt you overall spiritually in the long run. So then zeal and passion and good intentions has to line up with truth, reality, the word of God and scriptures, evidence. Zeal should not be based on feelings or ignorance, as Paul describes here in Romans 10.3. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and a seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's Righteousness. Now, when Paul speaks of his fellow Jewish brothers here as ignorant, he doesn't mean that they don't know any better. Like, oh, you know, we can't, God can't hold them accountable because, you know, they just, they try their best, but they don't, they're just, you know, ignorant, so we can't hold them accountable for their rejection of Christ. What he says by ignorance here means willful, intentional ignorance. Willful ignorance means the truth is right there in front of you. It's right there. And yet you refuse to look at it. You refuse to look at the truth and you're actually taking steps and procedures to actually avoid the truth so you won't have to face it. So you won't have to deal with the music. And this can be due to like how you're raised, influences with that, what your family believes, traditions. Look, I get it. People don't like change. I don't like change at all. And so if the truth makes us change, we want to avoid it. 
And I'm gonna, if I can be transparent and honest, which you guys know I have no problem with, right? <laughs> um, I was willfully ignorant about being healthy. I thought to myself for the longest time, you know, hey, in and out burger three or four times a week, no big deal. It's not a bad idea. Okay, just hear me out here, okay? If you think about it, an in and out double double is actually the perfect health food from my perspective, right? Because you get the entire food pyramid in that thing, right? You get your double-double meat right there, that's the meat. You get the cheese, right, the milk category. You have lettuce and onions, that's vegetables, right, right there. Tomato, fruit, right? Then you got the bread. And if you go animal style, you get fats, oils, and sweets. <laughs> Everything in the food pyramid do you get with an In-N-Out burger. I mean, so I thought, okay, well, this is the peak of the male diet here is a double-double animal style. This is, this is how you want to go with healthy eating. Well, my doctor told me, I love my doctor. He's the most direct person in the world. I just, that's why I go to him. He just gives me the straight truth. Uh, he said I needed to cut back on double-doubles because I have high cholesterol and high blood pressure. And you know, so I always kind of knew, I mean, come on, it's fast food. Can fast food really be good for you? Like seriously, right? I mean, I kind of knew it was bad, but see, I rationalized. I didn't want to avoid the truth because of my deep love for double-doubles. And I'm sorry, but Five Guys is not as good. All those other places, whatever, in the South, they're not as good as In-N-Out. I'm sorry. If you're from California, you know it's the best food there is. And I, I swear, every time I go down to Five Guys, it's like I take out a student loan or something. It's like, that burger was way too expensive. <laughs> like, who can afford that? I'm just going to go to In-N-Out and save $5 and be a lot happier, you know? And so this has to do with religious too. Surprise, you know. I mean, you know, we we want, we don't want to face something that we believed our entire life and find out it's not true. That's hard. That's uncomfortable. So what do people do? They avoid reading books. They avoid doing Google searches. You don't look at both sides and so on. And that's the amazing thing about Christianity. I just want to say this is that I regularly, on a regular basis, as in almost every week, I look at non-Christian arguments against Christianity and I look at Christian arguments, and it just comforts me because there's so much evidence for Christianity, for the resurrection of Jesus and the existence of God. So Christianity is this only religious worldview where that you don't have to have willful, will, willful ignorance towards. You can look at the truth straight ahead. There's nothing on my shelf that challenges my Christian faith that I have to not think about because I'm worried about it. There's nothing like that. And so that's the, the thing about following the truth of the Christian worldview. But I want to bring us back to what Paul is saying here is that they were willfully ignorant towards the righteousness of God. Better translated, the Bible is written in Greek, but better translated the righteousness from God. What Paul is talking about here is the truth of the gospel of salvation by grace and faith alone, and that we receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ from God. And so that's what's given to us when we have faith in Jesus. This is righteousness from God is what he's talking about. Here are just two passages to look at this in Scripture as Paul's thinking on the righteousness from God, which, which oftentimes when you see righteousness of God, that's what it's referring to. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. There's no self-righteousness here. It doesn't come from me. It comes from somewhere else. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, trusting in Jesus. So this is a righteousness of, from God that they willfully did not look at, that they were ignorant towards, willfully. 
They didn't want to have to admit that they were not righteous and they needed a righteousness of another. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. He never sinned ever. So that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God or from God. So yeah, they rejected this righteousness outside of them in, that God gives in Christ because they, they thought they were good enough and smart enough and doggone people liked them. They thought they could establish their own righteousness. Now, part of the reason why this happened, in part, is because they have misread the Old Testament in the same way that some Christians misread it. They read the entire Old Testament like it was about themselves. And they, they read sections that made it sound like, okay, I can be righteous on my own. This is about me, and this is about me trying to be righteous and good. And so they read the Old Testament like a five-cent moral fortune cookie, right? They read it, it was all about them and, and about their obedience rather than Christ's obedience for them. And so it was like many church, churches, how they preach today, it's all about a moral rule book and self-improvement. But the problem is, and the problem is even today, is that it's not, the Old Testament, by the way, is not primarily a rule book, but rather a book that points to Christ, that he fulfilled it for us. I'll show you an example of how they read the Old Testament to kind of show you how they would read themselves and their moral improvement plan rather than reading it about Jesus. Deuteronomy 27, 26. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of the law by doing them and all the people shall say, Amen. Now, what Paul tells us in Galatians 3 or 4 is that this was not for them to actually fulfill on their own. They needed to rest on Christ. Christ was the one who took the curse on of the law that they failed. They didn't keep the law, so the curse of God was on them. Christ was to take their curse, and Christ was to fulfill everything in the book of the law. He was the one to do all of that for them. Jesus was the one to fulfill the law, not them by their own might and merit. They were not to fulfill the law. And you see this again. Jesus repeats this all throughout the Bible. Matthew 5.17 says, Do not think I have come to abolish, just arbitrarily get rid of the law and the, or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so this is how we got to be reading the Old Testament. Not as, okay, this is first and foremost a lens where I can put in like how to get my diet plan up or how to be a better person. No, this is first and foremost about Jesus fulfilling everything in the Old Testament for us. And so here in Romans 10.4, the whole point of the law of Moses, surprise, surprise, lines up with what Jesus says about it, is that it ultimately points the person and work of Christ. Romans 10.4 for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, the Greek word, which the Bible was written in Koine Greek, right? And it was written in the first century Koine Greek. We know how to translate it. The Greek word here is telos. And this word means, means purpose or ends. Like its purpose is what telos means. And it can overlap to where you have the purpose of something when it's complete also ends it. So, for example... The purpose of a race or a marathon is to complete it. That's the purpose of it, right? But when you complete it, the race is done. And so this is what it's saying about Jesus here, is that the law was given for the purpose of Jesus fulfilling it. But when he fulfills it, it is done. It is finished. It comes to an end. And so now we are in this new covenant of grace, which is accomplished by what Jesus did in perfectly, perpetually obedient to the law of God, fulfilling it at every jot and tittle at every point. 
And this is not the only uh, place in the Bible that teaches the Mosaic Law is done, it is finished. So, you know, you don't have to worry. You can eat shellfish or pork or bacon, whatever you want to do. Hebrews 8.13, it says, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. It's done. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. It's not even around, it's just vanishing. And when, he says, when Jeremiah said this in Jeremiah 31, the, the Mosaic law, when it was, Jeremiah was speaking of the new covenant, this old covenant of Moses was as good as done. As good as finished. Obsolete. No longer morally binding on you today. And so when Paul says in Romans 10, 4, that says something more than it's just obsolete, but that whole law was put into place. Why was the Mosaic law there? for Jesus Christ to fulfill. And so that's the reason for its existence is a point to the person and work of Jesus. The whole Bible's point is to point to Jesus. And so the law of Moses was never there for anyone except Jesus to keep perfectly, but for Jesus to keep it perfectly for us. And the question remains also uh, by, by the law coming to an end. People ask, well, does that mean we need to keep it? I mean, obviously, uh, thankfully, no one's keeping the animal sacrifice. They're trying to uh, anymore. But we, those point to Jesus, too. We don't need to keep those. But what about the other parts of the law? Like, can you just do whatever you want? Is it just kind of like a big party time? You're like, oh, well, the, the law's done, so I can kind of just do whatever I want, you know? Yeah, I, I, can, I, I can go and uh, cause all this trouble, you know, slash tires, you know, dent cars, you know, whatever you want to do. Uh, you know, just, just, just go party on the night. Let's just hit the town kind of thing. There's no laws I need to keep anymore. I don't need to do anything. Is that what this is saying? And no, the Bible does not teach you're just free to break anything you want. That's not what the Bible is teaching us. What it is rather teaching us is that we do have moral obligations, but those moral obligations do not come from the law of Moses. That's not where they're from. There is another law called the law of Christ in the New Testament, and it is this law which Christians are obligated to. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 21, Paul makes this really clear, what we as Christians are obligated to do, and I'm going to explain more about the, what the law of Christ is. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win more Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law. Listen to what he says here. Though not being myself under the law, the law of Moses. He's not under the law of Moses. And I might win those under the law. To those outside of the law, I became as one outside of the law. Not being outside of the law of God... But under, he's under now, the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. So what he's saying here is that we as Christians, we are obligated to the law of Christ. How is that different than being under the Mosaic law? Well, obviously no animal sacrifices. Thank God I love animals. And I, I'm not, I don't like blood either. I always order my meat well done because it's well done, good, and faithful servant. I don't want to know it was an animal, right? So you don't have to do that anymore, you know? But if you want, you can have medium rare steak because you can't eat blood. You, you, you can do that now. You're under the law of Christ. You can get tattoos and eat bacon and have shellfish and you don't have to go on a Daniel diet either, which sounds, quite frankly, awful. I'm sorry. Like, that's not morally binding on you. And so you can love your neighbor while eating bacon. 
which is just terrific, right? And you're not picking and choosing out of the Bible, like, okay, I like bacon, you know, kind of thing, so I'm not going to forget. No, no, it's not arbitrary like that. Whatever is repeated and reinstated in the New Covenant documents, in the New Testament, is what's morally binding on us as Christians. That's what matters. And so, yeah, it does not reinstate the, the prohibition of not eating pork and that kind of thing, or eating pork. Um, they abolish all the sacrificial and ceremonial laws. It's actually called the ceremonial laws. They're no longer binding on us. What matters today that we as Christians should follow is a moral law of God, which agrees with parts of the Old Testament. I mean, they follow Ten Commandments, obviously. We shouldn't murder people. We all want to agree with that point, right? And so that's brought over into the New Covenant period. And so the New Covenant also has additional commands for us too. And so we're not picking and choosing. We're following the New Testament and avoiding not following the Law of Moses because that was fulfilled by Jesus. But here is the biggest difference, I want to say, in the, and I want to close on this, the experience of Christians versus somebody who's in a legalistic framework like uh, Paul's Jewish brethren was. Like many people who are in false religions, they will have a legalistic framework and legalistic motivation. And there, there couldn't be anything more different than a Christian motivation for following the law and a legalistic one. Because a legalistic one's kind of sad. It's like, you know, it's kind of a really sad thing. Oh, i got to keep these laws for God to love and accept me. It's so hard and difficult. My life is so hard, but I'm so good and I'm so righteous. i got to do this even though I don't want to do it, right? It's kind of a depressing your legalism right there. And this is what legalism always does to people. It always does. It makes them uptight, miserable, and robotic because there's no real joy in legalism. There's false joy. You know, people say, well, you know, yeah, you know, hey, you know, right now I'm good with God because I'm working hard and I'm better than that guy. So there's that kind of joy. But that's short-lived because what's going to happen is that you're going to mess up like we all do all the time. And then you have two options. You have really just two options. There's no way you can go. You can either lie to yourself and say, oh, that wasn't a sin or that was just, I'm good. It's okay. Just forget about that. And you, so you're being dishonest and you're living a life of self-deception. Or you can be like, I failed and you're miserably depressed and sad and just, it's a bad deal. Right? So that, even that joy of legalism is, is you're either going to slip into lying to yourself or you're going to slip into despair. So people have to lie to themselves. And so because they're not, they're living a lie, they know they're not measuring up the law. They live this kind of cold, robotic, joyless, very heavy uh, experience in life. I got to keep, got to keep the rules or else God's going to punish me. Got to do my best or God's not going to give me his best. I have to do this or else I'm not going to make it to heaven. And you see, so everything in legalism is this selfish, fear-based, joyless, self-righteous, kind of holier-than-thou mindset. And there's no true happiness or lightheartedness. There's no deep laughter and rest and joy for what God has already done for you. It's just, just drudgery, robotic sadness, drudgery. But you see, the gospel couldn't be any more different because the gospel entirely changes how you see everything. It's like from the Wizard of Oz movie when they go from black and white into color, right? It's like, it's a totally new take on life. Getting the gospel is why they call it being born again. It's, it's a totally new understanding of life and how you view God rather than a legalistic attitude. And the attitude of, of a Christian is like, oh, do I have to follow the law? It's not like that. No. The attitude of a Christian who's been born again is, oh, I want to follow the law. I don't, I don't have to. I get to because of what Jesus did for me. 
That's why I want to follow. Jesus finished the race for me. He already did it for me. It's all done. He's already defeated death and sin and hell. I don't have to do anything other than to receive it as a gift. That's it. And that makes life light, and it's like a totally new framework. It's like kind of like uh, Neo switch from going in, you know, in the Matrix to going outside of the Matrix. It's like a totally new perspective on everything. And I, I think the best way to kind of capture this perspective is to describe a, an analogy between a father-son relationship here. So say, well, I'll start off with the first father and son relationship. So, okay, you have a, a father who tells his son, okay, you know what? You got to do all of these things. You got to do this. You got to get A plus. You got you to be uh, the best football player. You got to work hard in the wrestling team. You got to be the most popular kid in school. You got you to listen to all my rules. You know, no messing around, not doing anything stupid. If you do all those things, then I'm going to love you. I'll give you my best. I'll give you heaven. If you do this, then you're, you can be around me finally if you do all these things. But if you mess up, you're, I'm going to just disown you. I'm going to cast you out of my presence. Like, do you think that son is really going to want to be like his father? Is going to want to follow his rules? What he says? Not really. And if he does, it'll just be out of fear. It'll be out of cold, joyless, lifeless selfishness. But you compare this to a son who is a complete train wreck, as we all are, really bad and messed up, but the father loves him no matter what. And this father sacrifices his life for him, even though his son is really bad, and gives him the greatest gift ever, which is eternal life relationship with himself. Do you think that son's going to want to be like his father? Do you think that that son's going to want to listen to what that father says? Absolutely. And so grace is not something that makes us bad. The gospel is not, it makes us want to follow God's law all the more because Jesus paid it all for us. And because of that, it just changes our perspective. I don't have to follow the law to be saved anymore. I want to follow because I want to be like Jesus because he did everything for me. And so this analogy shows us there couldn't be any more difference, a different, totally different worldview. Legalism versus the gospel. It couldn't be any different in terms of a relationship with God. Not any different. So if you haven't been born again and you've been stuck in a legalistic system where you just feel like you're exhausted and you're just burnt the candle on both ends and you're just striving and you just feel awful, then come to Jesus and find true eternal life, the gift of eternal rest and love forever and ever in Him. And your attitude towards the law will totally change from drudgery, I gotta do this, oh boy, to I get to do this. It's not like you wanna sin. Sin is like betraying the, your, your, your best friend ever that's done everything for you. You never want to betray someone who's done everything for you. That's the last thing you want. And so you don't have the attitude, I gotta do this. It's, I would love to do this because what Jesus has already done for me, I could never measure up to his sacrifice. He is enough and he will sustain me to the very end by faith and grace. Let us pray.